Hi, and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. My name is Chelsea Slotten, and I'll be your host for the episode. On today's episode, we'll be discussing how to transfer classes online, resources for online learning, the importance of practicing kindness in our pedagogy, especially in this uncertain time, and the impact that COVID-19 is having on field schools and field work. Completing the group today are Emily Long, Sarah Head, and our guest panelist, Dr. Laura Murphy. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. Happy to be here. Yay. Thanks for having us. This is the most social I've been in weeks. Right. <laughs> Dude, ever since this has happened, everybody's like, oh, let's do podcasts. And I'm like, I only have seven days in the week. <laughs> it's funny how that works. Um, anyways. Laura, if you could give us a quick intro into who you are and what you do uh, before we jump in, that would be great. Sure. Uh, my name is Dr. Laura Murphy, and I am an assistant professor of anthropology at Washburn University in Topeka, Kansas. Um, so our school is about 6,000 students, and I am the only archaeologist uh, with um, several other anthropologists in the department. And I teach a variety of courses, but I specialize in environmental archaeology or geoarchaeology. Very cool. That is very cool. So I think both you and Emily are teaching this semester and are getting to enjoy the fun of doing a mid-semester swap from in-person to online courses. I tell you, I'm glad I'm not teaching this semester. <laughs> <laughs> Um, do either of you want to talk a little bit about kind of what that's been like for you? Laura, you should jump on in. I actually okay. was already teaching online courses um, before this started. The only difference is the schedules changed because um, they gave uh, all the instructors more time to switch over their courses. So I've just been having to mess with my syllabus a whole bunch. But I'm guessing you had to go right from in person to online. Is that right? Yes. Um and I'm, you know, Washburn is a uh, teaching institution, and so we teach four courses a semester. And luckily, uh, two are the same for me this semester. I'm teaching two sections of Introduction to Archaeology. And I've taught that online before, so the transition was a little bit easier for the intro course. Nice. Um, mm -hmm. But I've scaled it back quite a bit. Um, and mostly just provided access to some pretty cool uh, Nova specials like Riddles of the Sphinx or Stonehenge. Um, so that, you know, in this time, you know, who doesn't want to watch about the Sphinx and Stonehenge? And so I'm hoping that we'll at least provide a little bit of a distraction um, for students um, for that class. Um, I also have the pleasure of teaching uh, anthropology, history, and theory this semester. Ooh, um, that's some heady stuff. <laughs> yeah. But theory can be difficult to get students interested mm -hmm. in, even in the best of times. Yeah. That's right. Um, and so this class was really moving full steam ahead, and we were doing really well. We actually, before the virus outbreak, the last thing we did before spring break was we went to Kansas City to the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art to the Queen Nefertari exhibit. Ooh, and ooh cool. So the students are working on now their write-up, their critique, um, through a feminist or gender anthropology lens by looking at um, how women in power were portrayed in that exhibit. Um, nice. So the cool thing about that class is it's small and it's all women. So that's pretty fun. Um, it's the first time I've ever had an all women uh, class. And so um, it's been fun to sort of dive in in online discussion boards with them um, about gender anthropology and feminist anthropology. So um, it's actually going pretty well for that class. So well, cool. One well, of the it's nice that you got to do the museum trip before the virus outbreak. And yeah. And I was going to say that one of the um, really cool things that the Nelson Adkins did was when they had to shut down, um, 
they went ahead and the director of the museum did a uh, behind the scenes tour of the Queen Nefertari exhibit for people and he posted that online. And so not only could I share that then with, with the students, but also everyone else, hey, if you didn't get a chance to see this, check it out. So um, that's kind of one of the positives in all of this is that more people are getting more access to uh, museum exhibits they might not have you know gotten a chance to go visit so that's really uh, been neat to see that mm -hmm. i am personally loving that particular aspect because i'm really enjoying seeing how easy it is for people to put materials online now, i understand teaching is a whole other bag of worms but lots of the museums are doing uh, behind the scene virtual tours. And again, they're giving access to material that would not necessarily have been available to everyone. Mm -hmm. And that I think is really cool. And I'm, I guess if there's a silver lining in this entire debacle, that's going to be it is just the amping up of the use of social media as a tool for communicating with the general public. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I know, um, the Perot Museum is based out of Texas. Um, Dr. Becca Pichotto, who is uh, the director of the Center for Exploration of the Human Journey, aka Human Origins, um, she was actually one of the six women who excavated the Homo Naledi oh, cool. chamber. Um, but she did a video walkthrough of the closed exhibit, um, kind of like a guided tour that she's made available. So yeah, there just there are all sorts of resources popping up everywhere of exhibits that are being put online and information that yeah, like Sarah, you said, a lot of people wouldn't maybe necessarily normally have access to, and particularly when people are yeah bored. I think Coursera and other kind of those free learning um, platforms have seen a spike in in interest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Friends with kids who are you know oh man. Now I'm expected to homeschool my kid. What am I going to do? <laughs> Emily made a great video on the uh, basics of archaeology that you could utilize mm -hmm. for that. Yeah. Um, kind but of. All these resources There's some terms are great. in there that make zero sense for kids, but it's like, it's the ABCs of archaeology. And I couldn't think of anything for Q other than quaternary epoch. And I was like, yeah, scholars <laughs> are going to be real into that. Big words, big words. Oh, yeah. I was like, about why? Poets. The younger Dryas. Who doesn't love learning about the younger Dryas? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, Chelsea, you're totally right with all this, like, education stuff coming out, too, on top of seeing all these different museum exhibits. And one I think is really cool that they're trying to get the educational component, even giving going so far as giving lessons. Uh, like, tune in this day for this, tune in this day for that, so that there's actually something for kids to do and then giving actual activities. I think that's really amazing because if, I mean, if I had kids right now and I had to teach them on top of still working from home, I think I would lose my mind. Fair. Yeah. So one of the things I've actually done is um, I went to the office and collected a lot of my um, uh, unsuccession or desuccessioned uh, artifacts that I use Ooh. for teaching. And I'm building these small little boxes that I can go and deliver to my friends on their porch who have kids who are going crazy right now. Um, and I've got, I'm putting together a little, like, here's a projectile point, here's a piece of pottery, here's a metamorphic igneous and sedimentary rock and putting together like a little uh, guide for them and putting in some fossils as well. So um that's fun that's one of the things really that i'm cool. doing to stay sane is kind of having fun <laughs> with little boxes together that's an amazing idea see i want something like that i want something like that for adults though <laughs> my mom okay well, so here's a complete wait, wait, wait. that is it wait hey god oh fine no go go <laughs> no it's not important anymore <laughs> uh if you want an adult kind of undiscovered wonders chest um you can check out the virtual curation laboratory at i believe it's virginia commonwealth university we'll put a link in the um description 
but it's literally just uh, like hundreds of 3D scans and models of artifacts and objects from all over the world. And it's so cool. It's digital, not hands-on, but. No, no, no. Then that's fine. No, these guys are really cool. That's fun. But you I want something delivered to your, your porch. Well, okay. So for Christmas, my mother got me a subscription to the Sherlock Holmes letters. And so every week I get a letter addressed to Sherlock Holmes sent to me. Anyway, it's weird, but you're supposed to read the letters and then put the mystery together. And then they send you a big reveal email at the end of the session. And, you know, everybody's into those like murder mystery boxes to catch a killer. And I think there's another one that's like the horror mystery box. Um, anyway, they're cool, and they send you a big old box full of crap once a month or so. <laughs> no, I'm serious, though. And then you put everything together, but you have time to explore, and they do send physical objects and letters and pictures and stuff. So, I mean, I would like something like that for archaeology, and I think that's what uh, Laura's put together, and it was just, I think that's cool. Yeah, it's super cool. It's focused on, you know, what is the difference between archaeology, paleontology, and geology? Yeah. And see, that's important. And I don't think a lot of adults understand that because judging by how many people ask me if I dig up dinosaurs. Right. <laughs> or found this is going to be an ongoing issue for the rest of our careers. It is. It is. I've accepted it. <laughs> Guys, but what about the Ark of the Covenant? <sighs> my, goal, my goal is to find Hoffa before I retire. <laughs> That's, now that I'm up here like it was a question I got asked on like one of my first jobs because I worked out of New Jersey and now that I'm back in the general area people are like oh what about Hoffa and I'm like seriously <laughs> alright go find Hoffa now <laughs> well one thing I'd, I'd be curious about um, for a lot of people who are transitioning their courses online or the types of programs and whatnot they're using. I mean, for me, it's pretty basic. I just use uh, screen record. Um, and then I have like videos and PowerPoints and stuff that I mess around with while the screen's recording. And then I put that on YouTube for my students and that's their lecture video. And then I add all kinds of like activities and whatnot for their week. But I'm kind of curious then like what other programs are out there that people are using. Um, do you guys have any ideas? So when I've taught online in the past, um, Blackboard, which I know isn't the easiest or the most intuitive or cool. uh, online teaching. Yep, it's fair. But you know, that's I literally know. every university I've ever gone to has used Blackboard. I've used yeah, it too. Um, I don't get it. Do they? But um, they integrate with a program called uh, Kaltura, which is a screen capture. It allows you to, you know, do like a red light pointer to highlight certain things. Um, it's integrated with recording software. There's an option to create a transcript of whatever it is you say, which might make it easier um, for some students to understand what you're saying, it makes it easier to kind of go back and find something because you can look in the, the transcript of what the instructor has said. Uh, it's actually really, really useful. And then it just loads right into Blackboard. That's nice. Very cool. I saw a lot of people were switching over to a program that I have no personal experience with, which is Zoom. Laura, are you guys using that? Yes, we are using Zoom. Um, and so I've uh, been able to see some successful lectures with it, and I think it's, a, it's really nice. Um, I haven't used it for lecture simply because I'm scrambling and I'm using what I know, and that's the voiceover on PowerPoint right now. Um, mm -hmm. If things do settle down I, a little bit, I think I might try it because um, I really do like the format. The good thing about using YouTube is that they do the um, uh, closed captioning for oh, you. Oh, yeah, that is nice. Which is important um, for accessibility um, when we're teaching. So um, I do like that. Um, but yeah, I haven't explored too many other options. I know some other professors are um, making just very short videos of themselves um, and posting those as well. But other than that, I don't know. I like the yeah. idea of a video lecture because uh, it gives people, because once you send everybody home, 
they're not necessarily losing productivity, but they're no longer working on your time schedule anymore either. Mm -hmm. So because of just, you know, the, the act of being in your domicile just interrupts everything. Yeah. Yeah. So asynchronous learning, I think, is really important right now. Um, and also because, you know, the U.S. has three different time zones. Exactly. So, if, for example, you happen to be teaching at a university on uh, the East Coast and you're teaching an 8 a.m. class and you're asking everyone to show up online at 8 a.m. and you have students who've gone home to the West Coast, you're wow. act- act- asking them to log on and be in class at 5 o'clock in the morning. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's just one of, of many challenges of trying to do a synchronous um, learning environment. So I've definitely gone all synchronous. I've got students that are scattered to the wind uh, from the East Coast to the West Coast and even international students. And um, not only that, the other problem is Kansas, we're still very rural and many of my students live in rural parts of Kansas. And um, it might come as a shock to some people, but we don't have internet access in rural Kansas. Um, And so students are often using their cell phones on 3G um, out uh, in the farms in Kansas. And so, um, you know, I've surveyed all of my students and that affects quite a few of them actually. They don't have reliable internet access. And with everything else, if they were to go into town, everything else is shut down. Um, They don't have access to Wi-Fi. And that's a real problem with this this big, fast switch over. See, I'm glad that you're talking about that, though, because a lot of people that I have on my Twitter feed who are doing the switch, they don't seem to be – they're aware that this could be an issue, but they don't seem to be directly addressing it. So it's interesting that you are being affected by that particular situation um yeah. how are you navigating it or can you navigate it um all i can do is post things in our environment also send emails so that they can get emails but i keep in mind like don't make these powerpoint presentations huge make sure that they can uh, see them and a lot of them are letting me know that hey their data plans have been expanded because of this. So we're getting like the trickle in of good news as more of these corporations are like, okay, we're going to relax late fees. We're going to um, allow more data coverage and data plans and not try to slow them down and these sorts of things. So I'm basically working individually with students as these things, as these issues crop up and and as we try to resolve them. Another issue is that a lot of my students now find themselves as essential workers. Mm. Uh, They work at Starbucks or they work at the bank part time um, and their hours are changing constantly. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they don't know day to day what their schedule is going to be like if they have to do drive-through orders or if they're having to run out and deliver food to people um all these sorts of situations really put them in a position where they can no longer keep with a regular schedule for class that's really interesting as well the whole idea of the student as the essential worker because like Mm -hmm. even just a grocery store clerk is considered essential workers right now and by the way i think you all deserve a raise just fyi yeah yeah and sick leave definitely and sick leave. Yeah, I think you need to be treated like vacation. real employees, right? Yeah. After um, this, let's just give all of the the, the uh, essential workers a, a, like a three week vacation. You know, the rest of us can just survive on right. our own. And healthcare workers. God, Definitely. Yeah, right. So I have to keep that in mind. Um, our local grocery stores do employ a lot of our local Topeka students. And that's got to be stressful having to go in and be constantly worried about people coming through the line and constantly washing your hands yeah. and stuff. And to then have to come home from that and try to work on maybe they have four or five classes now online is a lot to ask. Mm-hmm. It is. It's a lot to ask. And it's really nice to hear that you know, you're in contact with your students. I've definitely seen some professors who haven't, you know, are just kind of 
making things the way they want to make it and then just running with it. So if, if there are any professors listening to this, um, I'd say follow Laura's lead and you know, reach out to your students. But that does bring us to the end of our first segment. And when we'll, we return, we'll talk a little bit more about how we can help support students during this difficult time. See you after the break. During this break, why not check out the Women in Archaeology blog and see the types of posts we've been putting up from surveys that have been done in the field on what archaeologists are experiencing, all the way to just random subjects that interest us. You can also see the backlog of episodes, and it's also a way you can contact us. Again, thanks for listening. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On today's episode, we've been discussing online teaching and some of the particular challenges that have arisen during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic in transitioning in-person classes to online classes. We ended the last segment talking about some of the ways that professors can help support their students who are in a really difficult position. We all are. It's a stressful time. Um, And I really wanted to Uh, quickly hit on the importance of kindness in our pedagogy, Um, communicating with students, being understanding, being kind. I've seen far too many, and to be fair, one would be too many, um, but a a truly alarming number of posts on some Facebook groups and and Twitter from professors who are, you know, saying, oh, I have to make the finals harder now because our students are at home and they might have the internet help them, um, people asking for advice on how to make, you know, like sheet proof quizzes and how to make sure that students are staying on schedule and everyone's showing up and everyone's like super invested in the class. Every single person on the planet right now has things that are more important to think about (laughs) than a class. So like, don't make your teaching harder than it needs to be. Don't make your tests harder than they need to be, right? We're all stressed. It's hard on all of us. Be kind. I I saw David Anderson put it up, put up something about, you know, don't make your tests harder and, you know, have some sympathy for your students. And then I saw another person who just kind of blipped over my Twitter feed. If you don't understand, I exist on Twitter solely. Um, <laughs> but at Archivetics. Yeah, at Archivetics. But they were talking about how they were all of their colleagues were being super sympathetic to their students, but then they started getting emails from other students who had these horror stories coming from other professors at the college. And he was like, this is, this is ridiculous. These are terrible. Why are you doing this? And it's, I think it's a little bit of out of touchness and not understanding the stress that this is putting on people in general. Cause I think it's coming, I hate to be like this, but I think it's coming from a place of privilege where people are able to go home and be safe and they have a nice comfy home with that has everything that they need there. You know, they've got their toilet paper, they've got their bills paid, they've got their pantry stocked. And so for them, this is no big deal. It's just basically, you know, two weeks to three weeks off. But then again, going back to these students who are considered essential workers or they're low income students and they're living hand to mouth, it's not a two week vacation for them. And like Chelsea was saying, then they added, I mean, you add to that their college course material on a good day and it's stressful. And now it's even worse. Yeah. One of the things that I've done is really say, okay, I've gone through each one of my courses and I've looked at the syllabi and I say, okay, what learning objectives just need to go away? And I start cutting things. I started cutting things down, and then what takeaway important material do I still want to post up online and make sure that students who are able to can access it? And you know, I've said, hey, if you're in a good place and you're at home, I hope that archaeology can just be this great distraction for you, something where you can log in and take your mind off of everything else that's going on. That has been my only expectation of students. And it's complete the work when you can. It's there for you. Um, And we still, as a university, are working out our policies on 
if the students can switch over to pass fail or withdraw and get a refund based on their circumstances. So until we make those decisions that should come down next week, I'm just like, okay, I'm here. Here's the material that, you know, I would like you to learn in a normal circumstance. Um, but it's really just here. Uh, and I hope that, you know, you can take away whatever you can get out of it at this point in time. Um, I think that's a great attitude to have. I mean, to begin with, I think online teaching can be incredibly hard for students to engage with, even on a good day. And I think just having the attitude of, I want my students to try to engage as best as possible. And having the attitude that, you know, it's like I'm punishing them for having to now be online is ridiculous. I mean, Mm -hmm. when I create my quizzes and my tests, I I know they're going to use the book. I mean, why wouldn't you? Um, I mean, and things are timed just so that, you know, they're not spending hours and hours look, just looking up answers for a test. But at the end of the day, it's like, we got to be realistic and not be like, oh, they're yeah. just because they have more time now, I'm going to make it harder. It's like, no, it's, it's still just a class. And see, these are, there's two really important things that Emily and Laura have hit on here. A, uh, people don't have more time. They they probably might even have less time. And and B, who cares if they're looking shit up in their books? I'm sorry, my language. Um, Of course they are. When was the last time you did something? You, the professor, did something without referencing a book or the internet or some data sheet that you yourself created. Like, expecting students to take a test blind is absolutely ridiculous, and it has been for a very long time. Yeah. Well, and I would like to kind of plug, um, I took a course specifically on um, online pedagogy pedagogy when I went to go teach online, which I think is great. And if you're going to teach online regularly, you should totally do. I realize these are less than ideal circumstances. Um, But one of the things that we learned about in this class was something called the universal design for learning. And there's basically like three tenants. First being that there should be multiple means of representation so that learners can acquire information in whatever way works for them, whether that's reading a transcript, whether that's listening to um, you know, a recorded presentation, or if the opportunity arises, whether that's looking at artifacts. Um, you should also provide multiple means of expression so that learners have alternatives for demonstrating what they've know what they know. So you have a discussion board, you have quizzes, you have assignments, and you should also have multiple means of engagement. So different students are interested in different aspects of the course, and they should be able to follow those engagements um, and follow their motivation to learn about the things that interest them. Um, and I think it's it does put a little bit more on the professor in designing it. And again, I realize less than ideal circumstances. So trying to employ a new mode of teaching among all of this is difficult. And um, a lot of us don't have extra time. Um, but I'd really like to kind of push that as a standard that people should just work for. It makes learning more accessible, more entertaining, more engaging for students always. 100%. And that's never a bad thing. You are so right on that because, yeah, I mean, online, there's nothing all that tangible. And so if you can try to bring them in through discussions, through activities, um, weigh things in different ways so that like those who aren't good at quizzes, well, at least the other aspects of the course they'll be good at. You know, it, it gives opportunities. And, um, and and just to throw this out there, because Chelsea, you're totally right on this. This isn't the easiest time to try to employ all these things. Oh, yeah. so no, no, not at all posting on Twitter that they are happy to share what they have. I'm one of those people mm-hmm. at Trial Tales. If you need activities, if you need PowerPoints, if you need pre-recorded lectures, quizzes, discussion um, forums, that kind of stuff, I will share. I am happy to share. So I've got Intro to Archaeology, Cultural Resource Management, Law and Practice, and Intro to Anthropology. Let me know. <laughs> I will also throw out there um, at Osteo Archeo, I've got human origins and I've got 
um, intro to bioarchaeology, also happy to share. Hit me up. Ooh, fun. I might just want it just so I could I know, like, right? Ooh, teach me. This sounds cool. Well, and yeah. since everybody else is plugging themselves, I got all kinds of pop culture shit, but it's not a 101 kind of thing. However, oh, I think there should be a course in pseudo-archaeology. Oh, and there I, should be. There got should be. Gosh darn it. And I think your podcast, your blog posts are wonderful teaching tools. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I just think they're entertaining. So they entertain oh, me. they are. So but, Archie Fantasies, check it out. Laura did bring up the idea of um, 3D objects and yes, 3D is- object repositories. And because I do nothing but surf the net, we were talking about the virtual conservatory laboratory uh, online. Virtual conserv- curation, not conservation. Yep, you're right. And <laughs> sorry, reading. No. Uh, around March 12th, uh, Bernard Means put up a post that is a huge list of links to all the different stuff that they're doing and that other uh, places have done, like Sketchfab. He's got links to things like uh, Ice Age Animals, um, historical archaeology things, uh, the Isle of Rights. A Oak Hill Plantation, uh, different various archaeologies, and I know that you can find a lot of things on Thingiverse, which is another 3D printing um, repository. The nice thing is about all of those sites is there is a 3D file that goes with every print, so you don't have to print them. Yeah, you don't have to print them, and sometimes they're in like one color. But you can still get the feel for the object. You can still get a look at the object. You will still be able to see the detail that's going to come out of the print if you were to print the object. So there is access for, because I remember this was a question that went around Twitter. Um, Someone was like, how do I do an osteology class online? It's like, well, take a lot of pictures or use 3D scans. You know, Um, but was that the kind of thing you were looking for, Laura? Yeah, so... One of the courses that I was teaching was a hands-on um, course in Kansas archaeology, where each student actually uh, chose a, a, an artifact type that they were analyzing, and they were curating um, small little museum displays that they were going to then um, show to the public on Kansas Archaeology Day on April 18th. That's cool. And so... It's a uh, high impact, what we call a high impact community engagement class. And so we were working directly with the Kansas Historical Society to um, have artifacts on loan from these different sites and for the students to work with them, measure, weigh them, describe them, and create um, a museum display um, for this Kansas Archaeology Day. Well, that's all gone out the window. Um, (laughs) And so I've been scrambling to try and figure out are there ways that we can still see objects online in 3D? It turns out the Kansas Historical Society, they have a few uh, objects that you can kind of rotate um, a vessel, a prehistoric vessel and that sort of thing. Um, and so that's kind of cool, but you know, we're still really uh, struggling with, you know, how are we going to both work with artifacts and still have that public engagement component. Well, it's really hard. So I need to um, have them access different artifacts online and be able to kind of share them and interpret them with the public now all online. I mean, I'm grateful that the students, I've met with them via uh, different Zoom meetings and they're all on board to like you know, they're so disappointed that they can't have Kansas Archaeology Day, but they are completely committed to uh, using Twitter and Facebook to still be able to share what they've learned. Um, and it's even hard for us because we're not allowed on campus anymore. I can't mm-hmm. I'm not in a position to go and take photographs of the artifacts myself anymore. So right. that's a real could challenge. You, could you have them do something like, um, write up a blog post or do a curation style video and just use imagery. I mean, I understand that like hands-on 3d objects are going to be way more cooler, but at this point, you know, 
these are also things that can be put up and kept for a long time and they still work with communicating with the public because yes. people are going to go read videos, especially like my thing right now is I'm really trying to push people to like make videos, make quick videos, make TikTok videos, make Instagram videos, make YouTube videos, make Facebook videos, visual communication and being able to see people face to face is a really impactful way to teach. But I also understand that not everybody has a setup. But even just using your cell phone, sometimes using the cell phone camera makes it more approachable because you're bringing people into a technology form that everybody, almost everybody has access to because almost everybody has a cell phone with a camera. I have two suggestions or thoughts, I guess. Um, one, if the Kansas Historical Society has a limited number of objects that have been 3D scans and are available online, um, the Smithsonian has made public a ton of images and some yeah. 3D stuff. And the Smithsonian has collections from all around the world in North America. Um, see what they have. I, I don't know if they what they have from Kansas, but you know, the most you lose if you look is an hour or two and maybe you find something else cool. Right. You get sucked into um, a black hole of looking at <laughs> objects. Oh no. <laughs> what? Horrible thing befell me. Cool <laughs> objects. <laughs> um, but the other thing, I've seen a couple people floating around, and you know, this is more for kind of an intro archaeology, but if you've picked an object category and now you have to to work from, from home, having students pick kind of modern objects and describe them like they would in the past. Oh, that's but idea. There are mm -hmm. a lot of times what's the value of archaeology? Well, say someone has picked ceramic vessels as their thing, right? We're all stuck at home. People probably have bowls, plates, dishes, cups, something. Ah, uh, stuff. You know? <laughs> no, not break the stuff, but talk about how they're the similar, how they're different, how we have changed as humans, but how we have also very much stayed the same. Right. That's a great idea. Like creating your own, basically, typology of yeah. everyday objects. I love That's this idea. idea. And now I want to go do it with my own cabinets. I want to <laughs> out all the Tupperware and see, like, different vessels for different things. Oh, my God. I could actually do, like, uh, like a series in my, like, I have Tupperware that was bequeathed to me. Like, it's <laughs> legitimate Tupperware. And I also have, like, the generic shit that you buy at the store today. Like, I could do that. Right. But you can also think about how we categorize things. I mean, Tupperware, do you categorize it by brand? Do you categorize it by shape, by size, by lid color? You know, are you a lumper? Are you a splitter? Right. right. Lumper or a splitter. <laughs> um, what about the categories that we've predetermined or how we categorize things in the past? Are those the right categories or are there other ways that we could categorize things? What do Ooh. the categories mean? Like... Yeah. Decided the categories. You could go around one's kitchen. Like, did do you think prehistorically did people have like their version of the junk drawer? Like, what yeah. what would it be? And really, are we are we seeing is not an activity area, but their junk area? Right, yeah. new interpretation of middens. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to add to that, one of the um one of the labs that I think can be converted easily online is usually I do a garbology lab for my oh, lab. And so I was thinking, well, this could easily be converted because students can just kind of keep track of their trash during a global pandemic. And oh, from yeah. that, they can create like new hypotheses. Like, should we expect more plastic bottles of hand sanitizer in the archaeological record. That's a really good <laughs> point. Toilet paper holes. <laughs> we expect more plastic. My partner and I have noticed that the amount of plastic that we're producing in the last two weeks is so much more than we regularly do. Just because like our shop around the corner that normally refills our washing up liquid and our laundry detergent isn't doing refills right now. So when we need to replace them, we're getting, you know, we've got plastic coming in and leaving. Yeah. So if you remember uh, William Rathjee from the University of Arizona, the Garbology Captain Planet, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, he, um, when he was doing his studies, his hypothesis was on this idea of waste meat 
during recessions. And hmm. what we found was that when resources are scarce, we actually we buy larger quantities. This shouldn't be a shock to us as we're seeing that unfold now. Hoarding. Um, but actually people, instead of, uh, they might have went out and bought more hamburger meat, but they would end up throwing out more because they bought too much and couldn't eat it all up before it expired. And so the Garbology Project actually found that during recessions, people are wasting more meat than they would during normal times. So <laughs> I have talked to people, I'm like, you should like, you know, challenge your students to, you know, come up with new hypotheses for Garbology during um, this pandemic. I love it. The garbology of a pandemic. What does a pandemic look like in the trash? Mm-hmm. And you know, yeah, yeah, there, there are comparative yeah. samples of that. There's like the, the, there was that flu that went through the Spanish flu and um, a couple others that we've been hit with pretty hard before. Yeah. I, uh, I heard something very interesting the other day about the Spanish flu. Yes. Um, random t- tidbit fact that the reason it's called the Spanish flu is because Spanish newspapers were the first to report on it when there was you know wars going on in Europe um, and they were neutral. So they recognized and reported on the pandemic first, but it's not actually from Spain. And it shouldn't be called the Spanish flu because it associates it with Spain and it's not actually a Spanish issue. Wasn't it like first in like Nebraska or something? Never, it's, it's the same as the 1918 bird flu. That's what I thought. It's the 1918. And it was... Um, yeah, it was Nebraska or Kansas or somewhere that the first case was found. But anyways, on that very tangential <laughs> note, uh, we're <laughs> the recording segment, and we'll see you after the break. During the break, why not check out the Women in Archaeology Patreon account? And there you can learn how to support the Women in Archaeology podcast and blog, and check out some of the blog posts we've been posting on our blog. You can see the different ways to become a patron of the Women in Archaeology, from $2 to $5 to $10, or even just showing your support and interest is always great. Thank you very much for listening, and hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. So far on today's episode, we have been discussing some of the challenges with converting in-person classes to online classes and the importance of being kind to students. We're going to shift a little bit now um, and talk some about academic research, uh, CRM work, fieldwork in general, and field schools, some of which will apply to students, some of which won't. Um, But Laura, since you were the one who brought up some of the the issues that are being faced with field schools. Do you want to jump in on that? Sure. Yeah. Um, So there's, we're still trying to figure out things day to day really. And now we find ourselves starting to think about what about summer field schools? And already at my university, Washburn, we've already said there's going to be no on-ground courses this summer. It all has to be online. And so this affects our field-based courses for sure. And um, and it affects my research that goes hand in hand with that and being able to get out and do excavations and kind of further the field research along is just it's more and more unlikely that that's not going to be able to happen. And if it does, it maybe gets pushed to late July, early August. Um, but this is creating a lot of challenges for students who Uh, need a field school to graduate. In particular, if they're looking to go into CRM, a lot of companies want to see a field school on their transcript. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, uh, And it affects a lot of my students who are applying for internships for summer field work and work with museums as well. So Mm -hmm. we're starting to see that cascading effect um, where students are now not sure what to do uh, this summer because they've applied you know, for example, like the Maya Research Program, what's going to happen with that? Um, and it really impacts international travel and field schools as well, um, which I think brings up a, a, an ethical component that you might want to address here as well. Yeah, so I've seen some discussion of kind of international field schools and 
they do have an extra layer of um, moral concern. I mean, honestly, any field school right now has a moral and an ethical obligation to think about the safety of their participants, both students and professors. Mm -hmm. But particularly the idea of going somewhere else and depending on where you you're going that maybe someplace whose health system is not as set up to deal with this sort of pandemic and potentially bringing something transmissible um there are serious moral and ethical implications (laughs) in that um you know i was always taught as an undergrad and you know in graduate school as well that the first job of of an anthropologist is to kind of do no harm um, and <laughs> bringing a disease is definitely doing harm mm-hmm. i don't think anything that we can pull out of the ground is more important than, than saving lives in mm-hmm. um, in granite it definitely is i'm sure incredibly disappointing for those who do need that field school in order to be able to do crm work um, go to graduate school but yeah chelsea is completely correct in that uh, a lot of the field schools that are offered are in um, third world countries and if I I would not want to get sick in those situations and I wouldn't want to get others sick uh, I think recently there have been articles showing that even those who have had COVID-19 and no longer present symptoms they can still test positive. And then there are those who don't test positive, but then test positive later. So let's say there's a situation where all these field schools open up and there are people who go who no longer test positive or don't show symptoms, but then get actually develop or give it to others when they actually get there. Um, We've even seen this in situations with uh, UN workers bringing, uh, was it cholera or typhus to uh, refugee camps? Um, it doesn't take much to be able to bring a disease, a virus of any variety to an area that may not have had it before and create a terrible situation. We'll start to see a lot of different protocols as a result of this for field schools and study abroad programs Mm -hmm. that are international. Um, and you know, once a vaccine is developed, it's going to be a question of who can afford it, who can get it, who has access to the vaccine. And those are all questions I think we need to think about broadly as uh, anthropologists. And now I get up on my soapbox and say, and the field schools are even further being used as a form of gatekeeping into the field of archaeology, because now not only are we outpricing poor students, but we're out-healthing them too, because they probably won't be able to afford the vaccinations needed to get into foreign countries to do their field schools. That's a good point. Um, Field schools are already incredibly expensive. And I mean, I loved my field school, but I probably learned more on how to excavate on my first CRM dig than I did in my field school. Exactly. And I think as someone who works exclusively in the CRM field, um, I think companies are going to have to take that into consideration that there's going to be, there is the possibility that we're going to have a generation of, or at least a year or two of people graduating who don't have that required field school. And I mean, CRM's kind of gotten the short end of the archaeology stick for long enough at this point. Like, we know how to train our people in the field as it is. So it's not, I don't think it's going to impact us terribly as a field if we start taking people who don't have field experience. It just means that you're going to have to find people in the field who are willing to mentor and um, crew chiefs are going to have to be a lot more patient with new hires, which frankly, they should be anyway. But, you know, we're, we're going to be moving more from being, you know, just the big brother image to being the actual teacher at that point, which a lot of us are used to. So, And I would really hope that um, CRM firms would be understanding. And I think I've already seen some universities, I think the University of Minnesota for one, but I've seen a couple other, you know, letters from deans floating around from different universities saying, hey, we realize these are exceptional times. If you're a tenure track professor for the next 10 years, we're going to tell 
any hiring committees to disregard research and publications um, output for 2020. I mean, I think after because this, this is such a crazy yeah. year. Um, and I think hopefully this has impacted enough people that you get, you know, firms and universe, more universities kind of getting on that bandwagon and just saying like, these are exceptional circumstances. We can't expect ordinary output. The tenure already has a lot of issues anyway, so it's oh, probably time to start well, rethinking yeah. that it's, as well. That's a whole other oh, podcast. Yeah, it's a completely different podcast. <laughs> yeah, at, at Watchburn, um, they're discussing delaying our tenure clocks. So it does affect, you know, people like me who are on the tenure track. And I just, I can't set foot in a lab right now. I can't work on soil samples. I can't work on artifacts. Um, so in the scheme of things, it's probably the last of my worries right now, um, given all the other problems out there and people out of jobs. Um, but it, it is a, a concern for, for us and how do we then pick up where we left off in the lab. And again, moving forward, um, what do field-based courses, lab-based courses look like? I've already um, have been told, hey, start thinking about if some of your field trips could be made into virtual field trips um, where you're going out and filming yourself out at a, a cut bank with buried soils and buried archeology. span um, and how is that going to look? So I've already been asked to start looking into some of those things as well. And that takes a lot of time and a lot, again, more time away from doing the actual work and research that we need to be doing to keep pushing the field forward. So I think it's going to have a lot of uh, trickle effects for sure, at, le at least for me. It's difficult. And I hope it changes some minds there because like you, you, and I know this was just, you know, I'm not attacking you on this one, but the whole idea that going out and making these videos and creating this material isn't as important as uh, the soil, the lab soils and that kind of stuff, because you're like pushing the field forward. And it's like, this is pushing the field forward. This is moving the field where it needed to be going in the first place. And it's been resisting going since I've been in school because reasons. So <laughs> I, it's, I personally, I think... I'm trying to be really positive about this whole thing because like I am a big fan of the online world. I'm a big fan of using social media and that kind of stuff for communication. And I'm like, this is all we can do. So now all these people that I've been like, maybe you should think about this. Now you're all being told, not like you specifically, but now everybody's being told, go do this thing. And on the one hand, it's like, that's awesome. We're going to get all this great content created. And on the other hand, it's like, go do this thing, but we're not going to train you how to do it. Because we don't know and how to do it right either. now before, you know. And yeah, so yeah, 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 yeah. Have it done within a week. A week's enough time, right? Yeah. I mean, you're just making a video, right? Do you understand <laughs> what that takes? <laughs> no, you do not. Yeah. I mean, just class content takes a long time. Yeah. Um, it does. Yeah. And, kind of, and I think oh, it's, sorry. I just want to, you know, I don't know how to approach kind of administration in these sorts of issues, but it's like, there's really nothing that can replace that hands-on tangible uh, interaction, not only that you have one-on-one -on -one with students as you're working with them on artifacts, but also as you're um, teaching them how to excavate slowly and see the different soil colors. I mean, yeah, I can go out and film some of this right. stuff happening, but there's just nothing that actually can take that place of, um, the, the real thing in the real world. And so I kind of sort of in the back of my mind fear that like some of the universities will be like, well, look how great you all did getting all these classes online. Let's do more of that and kind of lose some of those really fundamental experiences. I hope that's not the case. I, I think that you cannot replace hands-on experience at all, but I think there's quite a bit that you can prepare somebody for online before sending them out into the field. Mm -hmm. And I think watching videos of people properly doing, you know, methodology isn't going to hurt anything. But yeah, you still need to get out in the field. But that's for a time when, like, we're not all going to die. Right. You know? <laughs> if we go outside. Yeah. And, and there's more than enough stuff in the museums and in a lot of universities in their, their storage areas that 
we don't really need to be pulling stuff out of the ground right now anyway. Yeah. So <laughs> now the trick is how do we get access? How do we get our students access to that stuff? That's a whole other conversation too. It is. Um, I would also say for anyone who's worried about, you know, university administrations saying, Oh, look, we can just do all of our teaching online. And is it really necessary to do this you know, in-person work? Um, I know there are some universities who host professors, whose adjuncts, whose teaching assistants, you know, research assistants are unionized. And if you are, like, go to your union, discuss your com- your concerns with them and get everyone on board. But even if you're not unionized, talk to other faculty. And I realize sometimes that's difficult because universities do have a tendency to kind of silo by department or interest. But if you get enough faculty together... Um, particularly if the university starts making noises about, oh, online, does it really need to be in person? What's the value? That's going to alarm a lot of people. And if you can get a bunch of people together and to kind of stand up and say, hey, no, there's actually value in this. Um, It's a first step. There's no guarantee the university is going to necessarily listen to, to people, but you have to try. Yeah, and I've, I've seen things posted on the Chronicle that it's like, hey, everyone, now's not the time to be evaluating these online classes because this isn't really online teaching. So this is like that's true in a global pandemic. So let's you know just kind of take a pause here. On well, universities wouldn't make money if they didn't have students on campus. So yeah, I don't, I don't, and I mean, to, just at the money side of things. Um, where I teach, it's actually more expensive for the university to have, um, people teach online. They charge more for online. So I make more money teaching online than I do in person. And so if they switch everything to online, they'd have to pay their people more. (laughs) I mean, I appreciate that your university is spending the money needed to have a good online course. Because I feel like there's a lot of a lot of colleges that are like, oh, it's online. You don't need all these things. Ergo, you know, here's your bare bones. Make it work. And it's like, no, an, a good online class should be as expensive, probably maybe. A, I don't think it should be more expensive than a regular class usually. But there's a lot that there's a lot of moving parts to an online class. There are, yeah, um, and just I actually find prepping for online courses harder than prepping for in-person courses and you know writing out scripts powerpoints recording stuff yeah it's really tricky yeah, it is. i mean i would imagine but um and then just i mean kind of taking a, a turn if that if that's okay just i mean speaking of money and whatnot i think it's very important for listeners to understand too in the way that our field of archaeology works a lot of times with crm People don't get paid if they go out. I'm lucky in that with my position, I don't know why I'm considered an essential cog in in my agency. Don't at the question moment. it. I know. I just think it's funny. I'm I'm working. So and I'm the only difference exactly. is I'm working from home. Um and I'm only allowed in the office once a week. But for those that are in CRM, and as Sarah can attest to, if you're not in the field, you're not getting paid. So what are all these people supposed to be doing? And so I think people are like, Ooh, it's a vacation. Like, Nope, it's really not. You're people are either working or they're not getting paid. And I think that's an important factor that archeologists, it's not like we can suddenly be like, Oh yeah, let's, we're going to write a book and we're going to do all this stuff. It's like, no, it's we're yeah, either working or we're depressed. <laughs> you can go write that book all you want. I mean, I'm not telling people not to, but uh, yeah. nobody's going to buy it if they don't have no money. So. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like you're saying with the, the the CRM, there's a lot of, it's not just that if we're not in the field, we're not working. And a lot of people have, their companies have recalled them, their companies have postponed projects, mm-hmm. yada, yada, yada. CRM is one of the first, um, one of the first sectors to get hurt in an economic downturn, because mm-hmm. if people aren't building things, we're not working. Um we don't we don't go out and just do archaeology for the sake of archaeology. We we only go out if there's a project. And so when people stop basically creating situations where we have projects, we don't have work. And it's not just going to affect me right now. Like right now I haven't worked for a while. 
And part of that is because the holidays hit. And the mm-hmm. other part of that is because right after the holidays got done hitting, we got hit with this thing. And so March usually is when work starts ramping up and mm-hmm. there's been nada. And I expect that to be true probably until the end of the year, which means I'm losing a year's I'm losing a year of work, like an entire year of work. And now, I can imagine how, pe- how many people will be set by, back by this. Oh, yeah. I mean, I am, I am only doing well because my partner makes the majority of the income. And I, I will flat out tell anybody who's going into CRM that, like, you are not going to get rich and you are going to live hand to mouth. It's just the way it is. Even it's though, true for academia, too. <laughs> well, and I don't know that much about academia because I've never worked there. But I do know that 70% of the people who are doing archaeology as their undergraduate and their graduate degree right now are going to be working in CRM. Yeah. So the majority of you are going to be where I'm at. And my biggest concern isn't that I'm going to lose a year's worth of work. It's that this is going to impact the field negatively going forward. And not only am I going to lose this year of work, I'm going to lose next year's year of work. And everyone who's graduating is not going to be able to get work because there won't be any. And it's, it's all like because of the way our... Again essentially yeah it is it's it's Mm -hmm. well and yeah if you lived through the 2000 the early the late 2000s you know exactly what's getting Mm -hmm. ready to happen and i think all of us graduated from college yeah and all of us are kind of hunkering down and those of us who have been through it like we know what's going on but we've got a generation of new archaeologists who are getting ready to graduate and they're they're going to be field workers and there's no work so i i would like to say two things to that one this isn't like 2008 because in 2008, the market forces that caused the recession yes. were known. That is true. This is an unknown. So how people are going to react is probably going to be a little bit more uncertain yeah. uh, or sporadic. And the other thing, I was listening to an interesting um, podcast that was talking about trying to find uh, rental or purchasing <laughs> properties in this time period um, and how that was being impacted. But one of the things that they mentioned that's different now than about 2008 is that in 2008, so much construction had happened that there was an excess of housing. And now in a lot of places, and this is particularly true for big cities, um, there is, there are housing pressures and some housing shortages. So when this ends, construction and building for places for people to live is probably going to pick back up relatively quickly. That doesn't help the entire country, but um, just some things to think about. We are also um, at the end of our third segment, but if anyone has anything that they would like to kind of end with, now's the time. Laura, we kind of talked for a long time, so I think it should be all you. Yeah. (laughs) What are your final thoughts on the matter, my dear? Um, my final thoughts are really, again, just in this crazy time um, for all the students out there who are looking at their classes. I Again, I just really hope that um, the professors out, out there creating an experience for you that will help you get through this, that can offer distraction, that can um, provide um, some stability in an otherwise kind of uncertain world by you being able to log in and um, see what we're doing and what we're creating for you. Um, And I know that that's my goal. And, you know, I'm just happy if someone will, you know, take away that, hey, we're not Indiana Jones and we're not digging dinosaurs. So um, (laughs) I'm happy with that course learning outcome. Um, And that, you know, what's cool is that we're kind of all coming together as a community. We're all here for each other and we're learning a lot more uh, from each other, I think in this unprecedented time. So that's really cool um, to see. And I appreciate that. That's great. Yeah, that's, that's great. It's a good point to end on. Um, As always, we love to hear from our listeners. You can, Contact us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com. And we're also on Twitter at womenarchies. 
And we have a blog, womeninarchaeology.com. We'd love to see you at any of those places. Until next time, stay safe and remember to wash your hands. Wash your hands already. 20 seconds. 20 seconds. Sing (laughs) Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Do the scene from the (laughs) Out, 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 coronavirus. (laughs) Out, coronavirus. Out. Out.